Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Game is About Glory. I'm your host, Steph, and joining me are Gareth and Milo. Hello, chaps. Hi, Steph. Indeed. Well, too much pressure. This pressure got to stop. That's uh, an old song from the early 80s, but I'm singing it because it just seems we are going to break our footballs by Christmas if we're not careful, but neither Antonio Conte or his players can wallow in such facts. Uh Uh-uh. They just have to keep going. This week saw a pair of matches we can best describe as Jekyll and Hyde Bonkerdome incarnate. We will first look back at our dramatic last gasp 3-2 win at the Vitality Stadium over Bournemouth before casting our views and thoughts on um, an emotional Champions League night at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium last Wednesday, chaps, against Sporting Lisbon that ended in a 1-1 draw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Emotional, right? You're looking at Gareth and me, who are kind of stony cold, <laughs> heart of stone... <laughs> All right, my handbags, and I had several out that night, were flying and hitting me in the face, and Lord knows what, and I was faffing like a giant faffer, as were all of you, I know. But anyway, we'll get into that later, but not quite on that level. As you will hear, we're going to give you something a little special when we talk about that game. But before we get going, we would like to wish a speedy and full recovery to Pablo Mari and everyone else injured in the stabbing in Milan on Thursday night, an awful thing. I mean... Crikey. Now, condolences to the family of the person who died as well. But uh, yeah, uh, full recovery to Pablo Mari. Let, let's all hope that he is back and playing football soon. As always, though, chaps, we will start with the week that was. And it was whose anniversary? Antonio's. Oh, do you Antonio. want to sing, do you? I don't know. Do, do you want me to sing? Antonio. No, I'm not singing that song. We, we've said that we, we've got to come up with something better. You know, that should have been what we did here. We should have come up with a better song to celebrate the first anniversary of Antonio Conti taking the helm at Tottenham Hotspur. I came up with one a year ago where we should, we should have done the uh, Nicola Bertie song for him. It's a lot better. I know. How would we do that? My name is Antonio Conti and I'm only... Well, that's the 50. problem he's 51 and i'm only 51 i came from a club in italy juve when i walk down the street all the girls that i meet they say hey gorgeous what's your name my there we go we managed to do it you started <laughs> this milo I'm... Yeah. milo started a sing song well, milo started I... a sing song milo started a sing song <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you probably need to just change the aged about bit. I'm sure there's something else that you can come up with for, for that bit. We, that, you can, you can still it? use the line, I come from a club, club in Milan, Inter. Inter, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's make this a, a, a vocation and let's make sure we have a great song for our uh, wonderful manager by the end of the year. We, we promise you we need to we get onto Spurs song sheet and try and convince them that, that we should be doing this but I, I think actually members of this pod talk, uh, talking to Spurs song sheet uh, so far hasn't gone that well uh, <laughs> Simon was trying to convince them because um, Decky's got um, an ABBA song uh, he was trying to convince them that Hoybier ought to have a Barbie girl um, song as, <laughs> as Aqua Denmark's greatest musical export and um I don't think they're returning his calls, basically. Um, <laughs> it, it, Simon, Simon got tons. Did he? Did he, he? Got tons, he got tons of abuse, uh, not only for, well, just, yeah, he got tons of abuse from Spurs fans oh. <laughs> for, for suggesting a, uh, a Barbie girl. Unimaginative to... troglites, come on. I mean, I, I think it's a noble and brave suggestion. Very good. Well, let's just put our lyrical heads together and let's promise anyone within earshot of the Games About Glory uh, on Saturday, uh, November the 12th, 12th. that if they crane their ears far enough, they will hear the Games About Glory singing 
at the home game against Leeds United, any number of these songs. And so if you hear us, join us because they'll be really good. And by the way, Antonio, happy anniversary, darling. (laughs) (laughs) I have to ask you both, before we skip, I mean, just very quickly, I think we discussed that we will analyse Antonio's first year a little more deeply, perhaps during the World Cup um, pods that we will be producing. We've got got a month to fill, so we've got to do something. (laughs) What are are your first impressions? Um, My my first impressions are that this still feels like a very transactional relationship I'm, I'm sure that every minute of his waking day is invested into doing the best job he he possibly can but he still doesn't strike me as someone who's going to go to bed in his spurs pajamas in, in in 30 years time and that's not to discredit him that's not to say that that's a that's, that's a bad thing um very few of us do gareth but yeah i don't know where sorry, to go i've thrown that. you off there haven't i i'm sorry i apologize <laughs> it's entirely it's just... my fault for bringing pajamas into the conversation an absolutely appalling sidestep i apologize for my lack of professionalism do carry on gareth yeah um like yeah so i, I feel that the relationship with him is still quite transactional i still get the sense from hearing him sometimes that he thinks he's doing us a favor by by being our manager um He's still the best manager that we've appointed in, you know, in recent memory. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the overall points that he's gained for us in an over a 38 game season equivalent is, you know, is pretty high. He's, he's, he's at a higher, he's at a higher benchmark than I think the rest of the team in the club are as a, as, as a whole. I, don't think he'll be with us if we're doing this podcast on in October 2024, though. Mm, Milo, step up to that one. Well, I'd say 25. I reckon we might have another year of him. Um, yeah, I'd agree with most of that. I think he's done really well. Um, the club were a mess when he came in. It had been a painful period. The, you know, the slide under Poch. You know, Mourinho um, was you know, kind of emotionally painful, I think, you know, even when it was successful, it was emotionally painful for the fans. And, you know, obviously you'd had the kind of COVID period and then Nuno was a, you know, failed, you know, caretaker. And I think if nothing else, he did really, really well to kind of raise our expectations very, very quickly and steady the ship. And he was, you know, in kind of lockstep with Paratici very early on. And I think most of the transfer business has, you know, has been pretty good. I think it's a bit unfortunate that we're kind of talking about this at a period where you know, the football's been a bit stodgy, but there's been quite a lot to contend with um, this season. You know, obviously injuries and um, you know just a crazy schedule. Which I don't, I don't know if you've mentioned that in an intro to the pod at all this season, Steph. But probably um, haven't. Probably you should bring no, it up one no, more you time. Ought to, you maybe <laughs> maybe do that next week. Sure, uh, I will. I'll make it. I'll make sure that everyone is clear on it as well. I'll be making an extra <laughs> long intro. Um, so you know, it, it's not we're not playing kind of the best football at the moment, but we're kind of quite quietly getting results. And I think you know, if we think back to you know, I know we're probably a bit guilty and harking back to kind of Poch's golden age on this pod. And um, you know, you and you and I, Steph, you know, kind of probably more than most but quite often under under Poch you know when we were very good the first half of the season tended to be a bit grinding out results and then we hit form around Christmas um and you know everyone will forget your your kind of iffy Octobers and Novembers if you come through to kind of January February March hit form put a put a, a string of results together and are playing pretty football um so yeah I think he's done well I think he's done well I think the um 
kind of our expectations as a club are a lot higher and he's being judged against that. I think you've hit the point. I mean, I, I, I agree with virtually everything you've said. I won't get into time frames because I, I genuinely don't know. I genuinely can't even guess. Um, it feels to me like he might actually stay a while, but who knows? You, you wouldn't care to judge. Um, I do think he has not just held the club, the football side to higher standards. I think he's the first manager we've had mm. for a long time that's held the entire club to higher standards and he's holding the chairman to a higher standard, whether that be through brinksmanship in the press, however he wants to do it, he is holding us to that higher standard. And I think also you can't really um, <clears throat> underestimate the era he's come into. He's come into our football club, uh, not just at an era for us, which was, um, well, you'd best say um, in flux, but also into a society that is, uh, you know, frustrated, angry and in flux. And so there's a lot more pressure um, uh, you know, relating to what I said at the very beginning of the pod. I mean, there is. And I think he's done a tremendous job, all told. And I really do feel that, uh, especially in the last few weeks, he's really, you know, he. I think a lot of managers would have maybe snapped under that pressure. But he, he you know, it doesn't look like he's going to. It really doesn't. And so I think his first year has been a phenomenal and statistical success. Let's hope the flow of football can be found. I was going to say, you know, you and I were kind of digging around for some stats on, on this and um, kind of debating on you know, kind of the merits of different various different stats. But, I mean, you know, basically you look at his first year in charge and I think certainly the, the figures in earlier October I saw I think after, after we had played 38 games, it puts us one point behind Liverpool. And I think it put Arsenal a couple of points behind us and it put us, you know, kind of about 10 points up on Chelsea. You know, I think you would, you know, you would have taken that last November. So, you know, miles, you know, 10, 10, 12 points behind City, but you'd expect that. But we're, we're there or thereabouts with everyone else. And I think, you know, go back to August. And if you said on the 1st of November, you'd be third in the league and guaranteed European football after Christmas. I'm pretty sure all of us would have bitten your arm off for that. A hundred percent. And by the way, uh, when you look at, you know, people look at Arsenal and Manchester City, I mean, you have to remember you're talking about money in one situation, which has certainly helped as well as the continuity of a manager that has been at Manchester City for many years now. And also with Arsenal is Arteta's uh, fourth season in in their project. So he's keeping... They've spent a fortune. Yeah, yeah. And he's keeping us, you know, somewhat on par, having already said that he fills these three transfer windows more before he can really say he's got what he wants. So, yes, I think you'll find that this pod is going to give him an overwhelming thumbs up for that first year. And so there we have it. Um, let's move on if, uh, to, to the other uh, story, which really caught our eye, I know, this week. And that was um, on Football Focus this past Saturday, BBC's Football's Focus, there was a particular, particularly eye and ear opening interview with Premier. <laughs> On BBC's Football Focus this past Saturday, there was a particularly eye and ear opening interview with Pierre Emile Hoybier. Pierre. I'm trying to correct myself. With Pierre Emile Hoybier. Sorry, sorry. With PEH, Pierre Emile Hoybier, where he not only spoke of his career, but also of how his father got cancer when PEH was 17 and had just arrived at Bayern Munich. And he details in this interview how Bayern were extremely supportive and talks of the pressures of being a teenager at a huge club, as well as his father's carer. I encourage you to check out the interview because he gets into the dynamics of that. And it's a lot of pressure for anyone to deal with, let alone a young man who is launching his career and in the very, you know, one of the top tier clubs in world football. It's an engaging, uh, interesting interview and much kudos to Pierre for revisiting what must have been some intensely sad and and, and really pressure-filled memories. He says in the interview it's the first time he's talked about it on camera, doesn't he? 
Yeah, um, he does. I remember Ali Gold, I think it was earlier this season, saying that um, Hoybier is a bit um, withdrawn, can be a little bit standoffish around the training ground and um, you know, with interviewers and stuff. And I, I, the interview kind of made me understand that a bit more and why why he may, might be like that, why he might be a bit guarded. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as a side note, just to say, I'm sure this won't make the show, but I actually just watched and I said to, to Milo, Gareth, that, uh, you know, the punditry we had for today's game, uh, Manchester United versus West Ham that they were showing today, after the game, you had Tim Howard and Robbie Musto both sort of saying that when Marcus Rashford spoke about his, um, you know, mental health issues of last season's depression, they were like, well, you know, all good for him for saying it, but really he should keep that stuff to himself. I mean, how utterly regressive can you yeah. get? I mean, surely we want players to be more honest and be more human and 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 show the world that like hey you know we're like you we have ups and downs and instead you got these two clowns if i may say that claiming you know well you know you don't want people to know that just it's your form and it's personal to you it's like bollocks it's like you know it's humanity yeah yeah so i mean i i I guess it's what's right for each individual so if it's right for you as an individual to to speak out then that's right for you if it's right for you not to then that's right for you but you absolutely you're you're right that is a 1980s attitude towards mental health that's shocking to the fore and particularly when you look at men's problems talking about these kind of issues and you know the kind of shockingly um high number of you know men who you know take their own lives and um, you know, because they don't feel they can talk about stuff or right. don't feel that, you know, it's, I think it's really important that there's people who are open about, you know, their struggles and, um, you know, what they have to contend with because it makes it easier for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, it was flabbergasting to me. And I mean, especially off the back of some an interview that we talked about last week, which thankfully did get picked up yeah. by people. And that was Matt Doherty's interview, which was equally, I thought, vulnerable and quite revealing. And and, and then here's Hoybeard giving, giving something up as well is really important. And you, good for you, them. You beat me to it. I think there was there's some similarities about yeah how they talked about how they were off off field. Um, I, I thought what was particularly revealing about Hoybier was where he said he struggled for motivation, and that yeah. might explain his kind of Bayern Munich exit and how he ended up at Southampton. He said, you know, he struggled for motivation between you know his dad dying and um, and his kids being born, and it was only yeah. really when his kids uh, came along that he felt that he had something that you know he could he wanted to live for. Grief is an absolute bastard, and it visits you when you least expect it, and it visits you when you least want it, and it decides to stick around as a house guest when you. You least would invite it to um so and and footballers suffer it as well and i think the more that players do talk about this stuff and stuff that you know mm-hmm. maybe has accounted for a drop in form or whatever perhaps it stops the you know the the, the click happy trigger fingers and the and the shouters and the yellers from going off i think you know it's a little more empathy isn't it it's the thing i hate most is that kind of you're paid x thousand a week so just Absolutely. try harder yeah. and you know as if it's something you can turn on and off and it's not it's you know no. form and motivation and you know all of these things are just so complex and you just you know it's not a tangible thing you can just say right i'm, walking, I'm crossing this line i can turn that on or you know if you are you're really lucky exactly i i yeah i mean look we could probably do a whole pod about this and we we're, and so i think we're probably best off just saying that once again um and you know a little bit of a a nod to matt doherty last week again and definitely a major nod to pierre for sh- sharing some of his life experiences with us and giving us an insight into you know who he is as a human being and who he's been as a human being and, and thank you for that and 
if you haven't checked it out, do check it out. It is the Football Focus interview at BBC. I presume it is available on your iPlayer. So go to it. And, you know, speaking of fortitude and, and, and all those things and psychology, we're... <laughs> The proverbial game of two halves at Bournemouth, I think. Um, but but more than anything, before we discuss it, we talked about this a little bit off pod. I think it'd be really interesting for us each to just say how we watched this game. I'll go first by saying I watched it live. Uh, not, not at, I wasn't at Bournemouth. I wasn't at the Vitality Stadium, but I watched it live on the telly. Yeah, right. So I had initially hoped I'd find it on a stream to watch at home, uh, but couldn't find one. So I went very old school and listened to the live radio commentary on BBC London, while simultaneously following the uh, Labrooks app, which shows you where on the where on the pitch the ball is and which player has it, and that's how I found out that Bournemouth has scored the first goal. Uh, I was also just following our WhatsApp chat as well as it was going on, which I think you, Luton, and I were predominantly involved in the conversation. I think Ram as well in the first half, uh, and then by the second half. I got into a pub that was showing the game. So I walked in almost the moment that Sessegnon scored. And I, I tell you that just for context of what we'll come yeah. on to. I went to the pub, didn't watch the football until I watched the first half last night and then the rest of it this morning. I had goal alerts. So I, by the time I watched the game, I knew the result. And I, whilst I was avoiding our WhatsApp chat um, until I'd seen the game, um, I had dipped into Twitter and kind of saw people's reaction to the game. Um, but yeah, by the time I watched it, I knew the result and um, could watch it with a kind of clear head and uh, you know, kind of emotion free. <laughs> and the reason that I think it's really interesting that we each presented how we saw the Bournemouth game is that, you know, it does play into the discussion because how you see a game of football, you know, it does dictate your reactions to it. It does dictate your rational reactions to it, your irrational reactions, your emotional reactions. Um I suppose we'll start with, let's just start with the standard question. I mean, how did you think uh, that we played overall? And, and, and also, what did you think of that team selection when you came across it in, uh, you know, in your, in your various mediums at your various times? Yeah. Well, we had the, we had the right side of death, didn't we? Particularly in Sanchez and Royal. <laughs> so you know that progressing the ball up that side of the pitch was going to be, it was, it was going to be a challenge. Um, I think, you know, seeing a team without Dyer and Bentenker in it was certainly, it, I think Hoiberg and Romero were the two that we were expecting probably to be out or likely to miss it. There'd be no hint that Dyer and Bentenker would likely to be, um, be missing. Okay, I know both of them were subs, so they were clearly rested rather than, than any particular injury. And so in terms of the performance, um, again, just going back to how, so the way I envisaged it, so listening to the Radio London commentary, which usually I've usually found them quite reliable as a, as a gauge in the past, although it's probably 15 years since I've listened to a full game on the radio. Um, it fell very much into that narrative, um, that's been perpetuated at the moment that Spurs are always far too slow, ponderous on the ball, seeding possession, second to everything. And that was, so that was the vision I had in my head. Of, of you know what was played out. It wasn't really until I watched the game back this morning, and again, as Milo did, watching it, then knowing what the score was, that I got a very different picture of it. So mm. having seen that, so retrospectively, my thoughts on the performance are 
we, we, we played okay. We were far more positive on the ball. We had far more of it. The ball was almost exclusively in the, you know, in the Bournemouth half. I suppose the criticism would be that having had a lot of the ball on the edge of the area against a low block team, we weren't able to convert any of that possession into meaningful shots for, you know, for a long time. But this was certainly a very different performance to some of the really bad ones that, that we have seen or that I have seen and can compare it to this season. I'm going to step in before Milo gives his view because obviously I watched it live and, and you know, I am, I'm fairly, I like to think I'm a fairly calm viewer, but this one was definitely getting me a bit jittery and I, I wasn't seeing it that first half. It didn't seem terrible, but it just seemed, um, it seemed a little sad actually because we were getting a lot of the ball and Oliver Skip was getting a lot of the ball and he wasn't able to do as much with it as we would have liked, but that's not what Oliver Skip does. And so there's a feeling of great frustration there. And you did talk about that, the, the, the right side of death. I mean, it was so clear as we were watching it and you can see those breakdowns. And I, I confess that for the first time, I really started to think, and it was coming up in the chat thread that we were having, and 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 Ram and I, uh, you know, we're not usually lit like this. We were sort of exchanging messages like, crikey, if, if we lose this, you know, the, the drum beats are, are going to get louder and louder and the pressure is going to get more and more. And, and and there was a point at which I thought we might scrape a draw, but I didn't really see how we could. And that was in the heat of the moment. And so now, Milo, you can bring the rational view of it because you had that experience of being able to see it from a more rational perspective. So I agree with Gareth. I thought, I mean, so in terms of, let's go back to say, the original question, in terms of selection, I mean, obviously I was, I was surprised by the selection. I was quite excited to see how Lenglei did in cent- central central defence. Um, you know, we've talked uh uh, for a while about lack of cover for for Dyer and this, um, uh, we've seen you know as a late sub a couple of times this season Romero slotting in there but I don't really think it it, it suits Romero very well um, so I was interested to see how he did I thought I mean obviously you know you talked about the right hand side I think in midfield you know in mitigation for the defence it's a makeshift midfield as well so uh, yeah I was kind of Excited to see how a couple, you know, a couple of the you know Lenglei did and uh, and Skip did, but also you know a little apprehensive and you know kind of pre-match. I was thinking, but you know, if you can't try those things up against Bournemouth, when can you try them? In terms of the first half, I agree with Gareth. I thought we were were okay. I think it was a you know six six out of ten performance. We had most of the ball. We struggled to break down Bournemouth, but you know, going back, managers, well, right the way through, kind of the modern era. We've struggled to break down teams that sit deep and and you know have you know, pack the defence again. You know, Pochettino. We you know how many times did we see that we were passing across the front of the goal, couldn't find a way through, and um, you know, and that's the type of game it was. And I think you know if you look at the team we put out, I think in my notes I put you know we've got it was a team apart from Kane and Son, it's a team full of roundheads, and you know you when you when you've got uh, a deep. A deep packed defence like that, you need a lock picker. You need someone who can uh, find a way through. You need that. You know, the t- the teams that can do that basically have got star players who can do that. And Kane and Son are our star player. You know, star players. But um, you know, we've seen this season that you know, just the two. If if it's just the two of them, it's not enough. It's a very good point. And you know, I will add to that that just before half time, I mean, you know, you're looking and Sonny's put that wonderful ball in that's ended up being flicked and you think it's going in and it just comes off the post and you're like well crikey mm. after the weeks we're, we're having yeah could we get a, a little slice of luck somewhere can something go our way <laughs> there were quite a few chances you know half decent chances that we created that you know with a bit of luck 
it, it starts looking very different. Um, I mean, that's not to say that you know the Bournemouth goal was shocking defending, absolutely appalling, and you know maybe you know back three that had never played together and and you know some players off form. I mean, you know both both the goals you know were coming in on the right where Sanchez and Royal you know are just you know, aren't on form but, at the moment. And I mean, do you, do you both agree that that I mean. Davinson in particular, I know that perhaps he's not been everyone's favourite player, but you would always say that he was quite solid, even though he wasn't maybe technically the best. But he really does seem to have be in a, a, some really poor form recent, very recently. I mean, I thought he was, was one of his worst performances for us yesterday. I thought he was all really poor. I think it looks, it looks bad on him that he's the one on his arse as the ball's played across the edge of our penalty mm. area where he's, he's in a position where he's got to try and react and he's got to try and stop something happening at that point um, I wonder whether a um, you know, proper analysis that Conte and his team will do will identify that the problem actually happened far higher up the pitch and you know by that point he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't because if he doesn't make that slide and goes in to try and mark key for more than the bloke on the ball's got to run in on, on goal and may well score it as well I was going to say that first goal it's a, it's a loose pass from Hoybier isn't it which gives that Bournemouth possession Davis is caught upfield Lengley holds his man up, but he gets a pass away. Um, the cross comes in. Sanchez goes across, goes to ground. The Royal is, I, I assume, scratching his ass on the halfway line somewhere. It, it's you know that was. I thought that was awful. I mean, especially for a player who usually is, you know, does like at least try and make a recovery run and does get back. He was just mm. he was having a, a, an afternoon stroll. It was a sh- shameful, and I usually defend him, but that was really indefensible. Yeah, it was a complete breakdown all across. It was definitely a structural problem that the situation was created. And you know, watching it on the way that Match of the Day created their their narrative, it was almost as if Bournemouth had cut Spurs open again and Spurs had given them far too much time on the ball. Whereas actually, if you watch it in um, yeah. you know in real time, that wasn't the case at all. I think Bournemouth had had a good opening two or three minutes and they'd forced the corner and then there was a there was a shot that Lloris saved pretty comfortably. But from then on in, really, they didn't have a kick of the ball for another 19 minutes until they scored. But that's, that's, that's how you create a narrative. And Yeah, and they did to us what we like to do to other teams, isn't it? Kind of soak up the yeah. pressure and hit on the break. You know, it was a loose pass. They recover, recover possession and attack very quickly. And that's, I, I, yeah. I thought it was against the runner play. What I did think watching the game forward to back was the, my, my biggest concern was once we conceded that first goal, that then um, followed that we had our worst 10 minutes of the game after that. It was a bit like the Newcastle game last week, that having gone behind... We really just went into our shells and football just happened to us. And um, it felt like Bournemouth probably, if they were going to, could, could as well have scored a second one at that point. Now, as it turned out, having going two goals up just inside the second half didn't make that much difference. And to give Emerson Royale some credit back for not being in the right place, he did actually put in a fantastic tackle uh, in that spell you're talking about, which prevented, I think, a certain second goal. Uh, and it was uh, about seven yards out. I mean, I would say he was probably fairly close to also conceding a penalty, but he, he got the tackle off and, and, and yeah. probably saved our bacon there. I mean, I, I didn't think it was that bad, actually, in that, that spell. I mean, I thought um, Bournemouth, Bournemouth's tails were up, but I didn't think it was as bad as some of the others. And I thought um, I thought certainly we ended the half brightly. Can we just talk about Langley briefly? I thought he did quite well. It's, um, you know, he's got different qualities to 
dire and certainly you know he doesn't have the leadership but in terms of um as a ball playing center center back you know that position that central center back is the player who sees the most of the ball and does the most passing in our team and they dictate play and i thought he did pretty well so in in terms of like the game so he made 101 passes at 91 percent pass accuracy um, which was the most passes of anyone in the team. So compare that to against Dyer, so for Dyer, say against Everton, which was another team you know we played recently who sat back and didn't offer much going forward. So in terms of kind of uh, having the ball not under pressure is is not going to be too dissimilar. So in that game, Dyer made ninety one passes, which was the most of anyone in that team in that game at ninety two percent pass accuracy. So higher volume from um, from Langley, but. Uh, Dyer against Everton had Romero against him, who's you know a bit more competent on the ball than Sanchez, and there was certainly you know a lot of um, Sanchez playing safe to, in order to kind of retain possession. But he didn't do quite as many long passes. So I think Lingley only did two to say Dyer's nine against Everton. But I, you know some of that's going to be finding your way into into a, a position and and getting the players around you used to it. But I think as a as a plan B, I thought it I thought it was reasonably successful. I think it's an interesting, once again, I think this is an interesting perspective given how we all saw the game. I will tell you, uh, during the first half, I, I, I was a little bit unnerved by some of the stuff going on uh, around him and with him. And I was a little unnerved at how high he got caught up the pitch. I mean, which of course is what he is there to do. He went, put the pressure, got turned. But having said that, I think that the mitigation has to be that, as again, as you said, he's he's dealing with the right-hand side of death. And, and overall, when you sit back and look at the game with a calmer head, he actually did do very, very well. And and particularly in the second half, when Eric Dyer came on, I'm sure we're going to get into this and slide in on the right-hand side. I thought we looked we looked excellent and uh, back there. And so I, I agree with you. I think that as a plan B, it would really work, uh, especially backed up by your stats, to be fair. As a first try in a makeshift defence, and, you know, if you look, you know, just at that kind of ball recycling, keeping it turning over, you know, starting attacks from the back, I thought he did pretty well. Yeah. If needs be, we've got cover there. It does give us the option of looking for a left centre back at, at, in, in January rather than a central centre back. So if Bastoni's available or you know whoever, and we've got a, you know a first choice left centre back who we could pick up, he was good enough that that become that's an option that we should pursue if there's one available. Yeah, I just just thought it was it was a game really where the pattern re- barely changed. Maybe apart from those ten minutes between Bournemouth scoring the, the the first goal and us regaining possession, where Bournemouth were very happy for us to have the ball, and therefore you needed to have as many players in our team who were comfortable passing it because they were going to be relied on principally with what they did with the ball rather than trying to stop the opposition. Mm. And I mean that is one thing that again, when you step back and look, you know, whatever you people say about our style of football, you know, we're not. We don't bluter the ball up there when we're faced with that. We do still try and play football and, and we consistently try and play football. And most of the time it seems to be working because we are third in the league. Mm-hmm. So, and we'll get into that obviously with the second half. Let's move to the second half. Um, you know, Conti was proactive with his subs. I, I suspect he, he subbed Skippy out because he's still managing his game time maybe, but also perhaps he saw that, you know, Skippy was getting a lot of the ball in advanced positions and maybe wanted a little more... Um, you know, a little more attacking flair, perhaps from Lucas Mora. I, you know, we switched to a three-four-three. And uh, yeah. what did you what did you think of his proactive subbing this week? Uh, I well, predominantly, I think he's probably managing Skip's game time. But I think if he'd been doing that, Ben Tanker would have been the more obvious choice. 
to put on there because we know that he's got a bit more finesse about him and he's he's more likely to pick something out. I mean, for me, Lucas Moore had another Indiana Jones performance, which was he was at the centre of all the chaos, but his involvement in it did very little to change the overall narrative. I think we'd have won three two with or with or without him in that in in that position. We've gone from the right side of the death, uh, right side of death to the Temple of Doom, have we? <laughs> We, we certainly had. <laughs> um, I mean, that is that is the full right side of death, though, isn't it? Because it was Sanchez, Royal, and Lucas for yeah. what about fifteen minutes into the second half. Yeah. Well, we saw what happened. We conceded yeah. a goal. I mean, it didn't ironically come from that side of the pitch, but I mean, you would have to say the defending. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Right. I've got see, I've got a problem with this. I've seen. I'm looking at the Athletics article about this at the moment that's saying it was a, another defensive horror show. I just thought it was a really good goal. I thought it was a really good cross into a really good area. And do you know what? If a, if a centre forward makes that sort of diagonal run and is that determined they're going to get the ball and then gets a good contact on it, you've just got to say it's a good goal. I mean, of course, you, we could all go down the Alan Hansen route of saying that every goal is you know is avoidable from a defensive perspective. But I think if we'd scored that goal, we'd be saying you know what a great movement it was and what a great delivery it was. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I thought Jordan Zamora was really poor this game and I suspect that part of it was um just trying to pin him back and uh you know bring on Mora was you know to pin him back and give him something to think about. I agree with Gareth, I thought Mora was pretty poor. The other subs we made were a lot more successful. And you know, as you you've already touched on Dyer for Sanchez, I thought it, it's the first time we've seen Dyer in a kind of the you know the, the more advanced centre back positions for a while. I thought he did pretty well, but admittedly that's without you know by the time he came on Bournemouth weren't getting forwards much so he, he he operated mainly in their half Benton Kerr for Basuma Basuma I thought was pretty poor again in the in the first half or you know the uh, kind of 60 minutes or so he got I thought Benton Kerr was superb and then you know Perisic for for Royale and Sessegnon moving to the right so that it's interesting that we've seen both of our left wing backs play on the right hand side this season I thought Sess did quite well on the right and showed the kind of where we're missing with the directness from Royale. You know, he, he was able to carry the ball and get forwards and, uh, and, you know, was offering actually more crossing, although admittedly, you know, coming back and cutting in onto the other foot. But, um, yeah, I, th- I thought Sester pretty well there. And Perisic, well, from dead balls at least, is a real threat. I think, I mean, I think look, Lucas Mora is a conundrum. Um, you hope that he will be a conundrum that causes the chaos <laughs> moments that benefit us. I think that, you know, you just have to accept that we're squeezing the best we can out of him. And at the moment, it's not really very much. But, uh, you know, anything you can do to whip the whip the spirit up, whether it be fighting with a ball boy for a ball or whatever, I don't know, by the way, um, uh, whilst you might, um, you know, give the ball boy some kudos for cuteness. There's no real room for that. I would have expected the linesman to have been there protecting Lucas Moore a bit more at that point. Look, I thought the best we looked on the right side all afternoon was when Eric Dyer was out there. There was one particular move that was beautiful that ended up with Sonny um, hitting a great shot that got put out for a corner, but it was the most flowing piece of football I've seen from us in weeks, and Eric Dyer was key to it. I loved seeing him out there. Um, and back to your long lay point, look, if if we are going to rest Christian Romero from time to time, which I believe we will have to, because he does seem to be a player who picks up a knock and a niggle here and there, I would love to see that uh, back three of Davies Longley and Dyer. I think he was great out there. Yeah, and as for as for Bentoncourt, look, <laughs> you want leaders, right? We want these seniors to step up and lead, and he absolutely 
took it on the shoulders and and just increased the belief and the tempo and the desire. I don't know if I said desire. That's not true. He made everyone believe that we are Tottenham Hotspur Football Club and that we're going to win this football match. Benton Kerr has been in an exceptional run of form, I think, yes. over the last month. I think he's been yeah. our best player over the last month. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's in a team that's been stuttering. And it's quite, you know, I think... Yeah, he's looked. He's been very, very good, and and he was excellent yesterday when he came on. I think one actually one point we should just touch on, you know, briefly, and in terms of that selection and um, kind of the subs, is that yeah, I think the starting selection is clearly you know we're managing minutes at the moment. I think mm-hmm. um, Romero is obviously ca- carrying a niggle, and the World Cup is just around the corner. And I think you know part of this is actually trying to make sure that some of you know some of these players can actually make it to the World Cup and, and play there. And I think probably the other thing we need to bear in mind is that if we'd won on Wednesday night, the selection here probably would have been different uh, because we're also saving players for Tuesday against, uh, you know, to, for Marseille. And if Marseille was a dead rubber, then I think we probably would have started with a full strength side here. And the side that started against Bournemouth probably would have been closer to what we see on, or, or, you know, we would have seen on Tuesday night. Um, but, our, you know, our, our inability to, to um to beat Sporting's meant, meant that um, we've had to prioritise the Champions League game. I, I agreed with all of that. And and speaking of leaders, I I actually felt this, and I'm, I'm interested to see what you think, chaps. Uh, uh, you know, Harry Kane obviously is managing his his energy and so on and so forth. And by the way, he's playing every single minute that anyone can possibly throw at him right now, which needs to be noted. Um, but I felt that even though some people were saying they thought he looked tired, I thought in the second half he was he was brilliant in in his own way. He was prodigious the way he was holding up play, working the ball, working the moments to keep possession, to to win a free kick here and there. To I mean, I thought he did a lot of really, really unselfish, highly skillful work that doesn't get noticed because it's not the Harry Kane over the shoulder pass or the Harry Kane flash volley. But I thought he was wonderful yesterday and I thought he was absolutely intrinsically involved in, in, in us taking taking over that game in the second half in the way we did. I'm interested to know what you each think. Yeah, he barely had a shot of goal, did he, yesterday? So all mm. his work was done almost with his back to goal uh, and, it's, and it's really important and... I'm really encouraged. I'm, I'm sort of going off topic here, but I'm really encouraged by the amount of goals that we're now getting from midfield, which means that there's far of a less less of a reliance on him and Sonny to to go and score the goals from us. So we've had two occasions now this year where we um, we beat Southampton four one on the opening day, and we won three two yesterday with neither of them on the you know, on the score sheet. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you know with a team that's sitting that deep and packing the defence, he's always going to see a lot of the ball because. You know, I was talking earlier on about kind of lock pickers and, and Kane is probably our best, you know, is our best lock picker in the team by a mile. He's our best passer by a mile. He's one of our best shooters from distance. And, you know, in a similar way, we we're talking to about, um, about, uh, Longley, um, you know, keeping the ball moving, keeping it ticking over, creating the, you know, you know, creating those chances, starting those attacks from the back. Kane quite often plays a similar role from the front and, and, you know, we'll move that ball, switch it through him and he's able to kind of pick that pass or bring a player in that no one else is. And, um, yeah, I thought, I thought he played pretty well. Just a lot of unselfish work that I think would in um, most weeks, and I would suspect in most pods this week will go unmentioned, but I feel that it's really important to mention it because it's, it's, it's important work. And there's not another striker in the league who could do the work he does there. Right, absolutely. And you talk about lock pickers and, and, and we, uh, you know, let's go on and look at each of the three goals that we did score. And, uh, you know, that first goal, 
We talk about lock pickers. We talk about brilliant passes. We've seen a pass from Pierre-Emile Hoybier that if, you know, if, if it's come from, uh, I don't know, let's say um, De Bruyne, Hoddle, whatever. Yeah, I mean, pick any of the, of the players, Ericsson, that's being eulogised all weekend. Nobody's mentioned it. Unbelievable to me because that is a sensational pass, isn't it? Yeah, and he's got previous for it as well. So the goal previous. that Aurea scored up at Old Trafford for us in the 6-1 a few years ago came from a Hoybier pass where he just picked the angle and he got the weight absolutely spot on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it takes five players out of play. And, you know, that's what we'd, we'd missed up until that point. You know, we'd had lots of possession. We'd had lots of possession in our advanced um, positions. But more often than not, it was um, kind of shots from distance or crosses in that weren't really finding their man or, you know, Bournemouth were quite happy heading away. And just that kind of, you know, millimeter perfect pass uh, into, into Sess's run, um, you, know, you know, created a chance out of nothing. And I mean, I thought, I think also, you know, I thought Sess put it away well. You yes. know, been a bit um, yes. you know, critical of him and, you know, mm-hmm. queried his confidence in front of the goal. You know, you've got to bear in mind, you know, when he was at his last season at Fulham, he scored, I think, 15 league goals that season in the championship. Um, so if he can find his groove, if he can find his confidence, there's goals there, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, it might be quite important. It, you know, oh, it's vital. It probably helps that he didn't need to take a touch on it. It was struck first time, but it was a ni- it was a nicely taken goal. I completely agree, and, he, and and I have been very critical of his of his uh, inability to finish in those positions many times this season. So you're absolutely right. We must give full kudos to him for finishing it. And again, once again, Pierre Emil Hoiber, my friends, more than just a cheeky dinker. Keep your eye open. Ben Davis then scores from what our our twenty twentieth. 21st corner? I know exactly. That was our 14th corner of the game. And the reason oh, I knew that and I was clocking that was because pre-game, I'd actually been looking at our corners this year and worked out that we had scored seven from, I think, 92, which meant that we were scoring at just over 7% of our corners, which is actually it's a phenomenal rate. It's more than double Premier League averages. I think 3% is about the standard conversion rate for corners. So therefore, I knew that roughly if it's 7%, that means that we score on average from every about every 14 corners so, so you were watching the cor- on the Labbrooks you saw the Labbrooks app right I know you were in the pub at that point did you place a bet did you place a bet I, I, I didn't I was in the pub at that point I should have done but as it clocked up I was thinking as we're getting 11, 12, 13 and then it went to 14 corners in my mind I was thinking well we're due to score from this one and sure enough, we did score from that one. You know why I thought we were due to score from that one is because the guy actually mentioned the corner tally, which I obviously since um, forgot completely when I was speaking a minute ago. But I remember thinking at the point, crikey, that's a lot of corners. We're going to have to score from one sooner or later. It was a textbook VO corner. I've said about this before. So on, on Spurs play, you can change the speed of the uh, of um, the play. So I watched it back kind of several times on on twenty five percent of the speed, so I could really see the movement. So Davis starts off at the front post, and he makes a looping run to the yeah. back post, whilst Kane, Dyer, Bentenker, and uh, and uh, Longley move to the front, and they pull all of the Bournemouth defenders to the uh, to the front post and that leaves davis one-on-one with uh zamora at the back post with you know and gets that header so it's a really really neat play and we see this a lot with uh with vo where you get decoy runs pulling players out of the way and then creating space yeah really really smart bit of play and that switch from front to back and back to front is a is a very very common play from him but it worked a treat here and all of the bournemouth players fell for it can i ask what was their goalkeeper doing uh, he was in the middle of the uh, middle of the goal, so he he's also getting distracted. So you've got two 
most of the Bournemouth players get drawn to the front post with the the four big lads who make the run there. There's two Bournemouth players in front of the goalkeeper in the middle of the goal. The Bournemouth keeper is on the on the line in the middle and does a star jump. Um, and then it's uh, Davis on Zamora at the back post. So I mean, Davis, um, you, know, you know, makes a you know a good jump, clear of his man, and pretty much gets a clear header at it. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, perfect from. Perisic in terms of you know positioning of that and yeah a really 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 well worked um move I, I think Paris I, Gareth and I were talking about this earlier on today I, I think Perisic's corners are better than Sun's I think um I think there's he's got more variety there and I just I just prefer them and we were talking about whether we could get the stats on like comparing the two of them in terms of um you know the number of goals you know what's the quality of chances they're creating and what's the return on them uh split between the two I think Perisic in open play, I think it's been pretty disappointing. But from dead ball situations, is is still excellent. Well, he's had at least five assists over all competitions this season. That's one of my uh, rough stats I'm pulling. I'm sure that uh, there's a slightly more accurate one. I believe that that was his fourth, maybe fifth assist in the Premier League this season. I'm not sure. And he's got one in the Champions League. That was the fourth Premier League goal that's been scored directly from a Perisic corner. Yeah, there we go. Three, he's got one in the Champions his- yeah, he's got one in the Champions League as well. So uh, yes, vindicates what you're saying. And let's move on to our other corner taker, um, Sonny, who I believe that was the 20th uh, or 21st corner. I think that's where I'm getting that number from. We're at the death. We're doing it the way we like to do it. The pressure is on. Um, I think we're all wondering if it's going to happen. And there it was. I mean, Bentoncourt with a cool as you like finish from a shot that he'd initially put in that rebounded off someone's shoulder. And he just, I mean... Some techers there, the way he placed that, that's an easy one to balloon over in the 92nd minute. Yeah, I mean, I haven't slowed it down to see what was happening beforehand. It's not obviously as pure as the Davis goal because it takes a couple of touches before it eventually lands at Benton Curl's boot. And as you, as you said, he just passed the ball into the roof of the net mm. from what, eight yards out when it would have been much easier to, to, to put it over the roof, as Emerson had in the first half, actually. <laughs> I was just thinking. <laughs> he managed to clear the stand from inside the box. Yeah. <laughs> but in some mitigation, we should say the Vitality Stadium doesn't have the tallest stands. I mean, we should add that, right? But nonetheless, it was still. For, for, for context, yeah, yeah. You're going to it was a to little whiffy, to say the least. It was a yeah, little. You won't, you won't get it out of Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. That would be a hell of a mess if they got it over the roof and into the old Paxton Road. Yeah, but <laughs> someone in row M would have got a right clonking. But yes, anyway, to that point. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I, I haven't looked back to see the movements that took place beforehand, though. Or was it just a bit of luck, merely that it bounced in the right place? I, I did watch it back. It's not, yeah, it's not an inch perf- perfect, uh, executed, pre-planned move. He's, you know, there's some good movement there, but he's in the right place at the right time. Um, but beautifully taken, beautifully taken. And cue mass celebrations from all of us. Um, let me ask you uh, one penultimate question. Um, well, it would be the penultimate question because there shouldn't be more than one penultimate question, should there? Anyway, uh, are we trying to play 45-minute matches right now to manage the load? I mean, do you think that Antonio, with that team selection, we talked about him resting players, we talked about... Do you think he was prepared to take it on the chin and say, well, whatever happens in this first half, I have to hope that we can keep it tight and, you know, we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll just sit that one out and we'll, you know, do you think that that's how he's having to do it right now it feels that way to quote david Byrne, same as it ever was same as it ever was isn't this what we've seen from conte right the way through we've had slow first half david Byrne say up. that last bit as well <laughs> <laughs> 
sounded like um, you were reciting a full lyric. <laughs> <laughs> David Byrne, Talking Heads, Tottenham, Talking Heads, top supporters. David Byrne, who did you're not? You're not. You're not as much of a fan of him as I am, are you? But um, I'm not. But I'm now that I know that he's actually realised how Antonio plays and what he's been doing <laughs> for the. I, I'm actually quite tickled by him. I might have to investigate uh, Talking Heads a little more. Um, I think there was plenty of games last season where we were slow to start and picked up after the break. I think it's been a, a pretty much a constant. I think part of the tactic there is to try and exhaust teams and then attack them when they're tired and you know and, and prey on mistakes. I'm sure that the World Cup is a factor, you know, in the and the fixture list is a, is a factor in this as well. But I think it, you know, I think it's something that he's always done. Maybe it's just a bit more exaggerated. I think also we're not in a great run of form and that probably makes it, you know, a bit more obvious as well. Yeah, I just think we were a little bit unlucky to be 2-0 down yesterday. I think what you've asked is the premise of that is correct or has been correct previously. I don't actually think it was. I, I thought we we played reasonably well and had a decent tempo about us from the, from the start of the game yeah. yesterday. I suppose yeah. the next game we're going to talk about probably is a better example of that, isn't it? Uh, it's yeah. uh, it's going to be interesting. And ironically, one of the things that will segue us into that before we go to one positive and one negative is, of course, Antonio's celebration for Bentacle's winner was to was to kind of walk down the tunnel. And afterwards, he joked in the press conference that, you know, he wanted to make sure the goal was good first. <laughs> <laughs> he made some uh, comment with, with a big smile about that. But, uh, but anyway, we are going to get to Sporting Lisbon in a second, but not before, chaps, we've done our one positive and one negative. Um, so uh, three, two, one. Whoever wants to take it. Uh, so for me, the negative was the reaction to going behind in the first half. I say so I, I thought it was a particularly unconvincing ten to fifteen minute period from sort of twenty first minute to about thirty fifth minute. Um, it does worry me that there is some mental fragility, and you know, on another day against a better team, as was proved with Newcastle, that can actually be curtains for you if you if you go to sleep at that point um the positive in you know, in total contrast to that has got to be it takes some real doing in any circumstance to be 2-0 down in a game and to come back and, and and win it so that's through sheer i think force of nature and will that we were able to turn that around in the end my positive is that the kind of general air of negativity after the first half meant that i was able to pick up a couple of tickets for leeds um which <laughs> 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 very good um, and my negative is the general air of negativity <laughs> there you go yeah i'm gonna have a tough time beating that that's excellent but yeah i mean i have to include myself in the negative thought first i mean i, I i'm so aware of where we are in our season what this season is um you know that the pressures the minutes in the legs why players have to be rested i've waffled on about the red zone on and on and on and there i was kerfuffling you know in the first half and sort of almost getting allowing myself to get dragged into a tizzy um and i think that the biggest positive is that i mean i won't make this all about me and how i react but i was very quickly got myself on side but hearing our supporters really really get behind the team and and really drive them on especially after the successors scored you know and you saw Hoybe look at them at one point when we were at 2-2 and just waving his arms like, keep going, keep singing. And so for anyone who ever doubts that supporters have that big an effect, uh, you know, you saw right there that it's a team effort. We were all in it together. And you really felt by the end of this, you felt 
you know, we're on it again and we're going to be able to go into this final stretch of, you know, of games in this horrible run that we've, that, that we're going through and, and we're going to be able to get the job done. And I really felt it was such an important thing, you know, to, to, that we won that game, not just for the three points, but for Tuesday and for beyond. So a lot of positives really. Um, so yeah, let's now go to <laughs> the Champions League home game against Sporting Lisbon. Um, first of all, it's a it really good move on the club's part. Back of the shirt had the Tottenham Food Bank advert below the squad number, which is a, which is really a nice touch and really important. Food banks right now, without wishing to get too um, you know social at this moment of the pod, but they're incredibly important, and you know they're supplying a really really vital uh, bridge between you know a lot of people who can't afford to heat or eat, if you will. And, and they're providing the gap. So I'm really, you know, quite proud of the club for, for doing that. It's a great thing. And then there was also the Park Lane TIFO before kickoff by uh, THFC Flags, which I think we'd all agree looked pretty impressive, right? Good, yeah. I think the guys, um, THFC Flags, um, on Twitter have been showing their handiwork over a couple of days beforehand. It was it was really nice to see it um, emerging. And AJ Tracy um, put his hand in his pocket to help um, fund it. So THFC Flags are kind of fan-funded, fan-run, or you know, it's an individual, and um, so it's not a club club thing. Uh, it's the it's the fans doing it, and uh, it's a good thing. And I think you know we've we've touched on this before, but I think over the last kind of year or so, so both them and Spurs song sheet, it's nice to see kind of the fans taking the initiative and trying to get things uh, yeah things happening. Um, so yeah, more power to them. Yeah, it was it was all set up for the job to be done. Look, it's going to be hard to discuss this game. Um, in any huge amount of detail or any um you know chronology really because there was one overriding element however that overriding element the var which we will talk about in a minute in our own way and it will be our own way did overshadow the fact chaps that really the first half was pretty flat right and essentially that this is a game that should have been out out of sight before that var um and also uh one in which we you know you could argue that in the first half we were really pretty drab i mean for what you'd expect in a must-win home game i thought we were all right up until they scored and and then we really really looked devoid of ideas so i think that would be that would be similar to how i thought you know the newcastle game went as well um what i really struggled with was after sporting scored they were quite happy to um you know sit back and pass across the back and then you could see kind of son and kane standing on the halfway line you know, retreating back, not sure whether to press them or not, and Sporting quite, you know, quite happy to pass the ball, the the width of the pitch, back and forth. Thinking, well, we can do this for the, we can do this for another sixty minutes. You know, if you if you don't want if you don't want to come and get it, we're, we're happy carrying on doing this. And they couldn't work it out amongst themselves what to do. And you know, they got locked in this defensive shape when Sporting had no intention of attacking. And I was really worried about just kind of the nous of our players. Really, I just thought. Yeah, and it wasn't really until half time that you know, and obviously the second half I thought was pretty good, but it really shouldn't take Conte or you know the coaches to tell them that if a team is sitting back and passing across the back line and you're down in a game that if you win you're you're through to the group stage, you know, sorry, the knockout stages of the, of the Champions League, that maybe sitting back in a defensive shape isn't the smartest idea. It was just really odd. Mm. Yeah, that's right. They're right. They did look like they were. You know, they were utterly clueless, and it did feel like Sporting was just going to pass the ball around themselves for the you know, for the rest of the evening. It was, uh, it was sort of particularly galling, and you could sense the the ire of the fans 
Um, the crowd just just building as that first half went along, and they were, I think, quite wrongly booed off at half time. But you could understand where that frustration was coming from. I mean, do you think at that moment it's, it's very much a situation of? I mean, fatigue is. You know, we've gone on and on about it, and it is a factor, and so on and so forth. But do you think when you're tired, you maybe allow? insecurities to creep in you maybe get a little afraid and then having given that the first goal it may be a tribute to to you know i i think hugo should have done better with it but regardless i mean you, know, you can break any goal down and say well this is a fault this is a fault. but the perception at that point immediately was oh it's it's a mistake and so then do you think there's this air that they were like oh well i don't want to make a mistake i don't want to i don't want to dare dare to do really i mean it, it, you know for fear of more booing do you think there's any truth in that in that sentiment or thought uh, I think that it was Marcus Edwards running through and normally you'd expect Dyer to come out and en- engage him a little bit quicker. But of course, in Lisbon, Edwards had run rings around him quite literally. And I suppose the last thing he wanted was to get, was to get mugged off again like that. So therefore, the back three all backed off and allowed him 25 yards out from goal to, to have a shot. He'd skip around the challenge of Hoiberg in the centre circle. And back to that, again, I mean, to, to some extent, a bit like the second Bournemouth goal, Sometimes you've got to say, do you know what? That's a, yeah, actually, that's a, that's a good goal. And if one of our players had scored that, we'd have been talking about it and we'd have been, we'd have been really right. Proud I mean, of I, I actually didn't want to pick the goal apart too much, but seeing as we're here, I must say that I was very disappointed in, in Romero's complete lack of engagement at that moment. I mean, again, we, 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 you know, you should be stepping up and engaging, but you know, I, I don't know if he's managing an injury and he's a little worried about his health or fitness. I just wonder if those play into your minds at that moment and you play a little more cautiously. I mean, in general, do we think that this fear and fatigue makes you play a little more cautiously because you don't want to get tabbed for the mistake or you don't want to push the envelope in case you, I don't know, get hurt or get booed or whatever? Yes, I think is the answer to that. I think enough players have said in the past that that is just something that enters their mind. I think particularly in, in home games that you, you play it safe. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly been critical of our fans kind of singling out players and moaning and groaning in the past and I think it's I don't think it's um I think it's you know self-defeating I think it uh, we're shooting ourselves in the foot and I really don't like it so watching the game I thought we lacked brains I thought our players lacked brains and they weren't able to adapt to a changing game state and I think that's um I think that's been a, a constant you know if you look at these games where we've, where we've conceded mid way through the first half and there's been quite a few over the last few weeks and we've been able to, unable to sort it out on the pitch until half time and then when when they're given instructions they come out and play very very differently um and i i just find it very very difficult to understand i don't think that's just fear um i think that is mm. you know a lack of leadership in the team i think you know the senior players there's enough senior players in there who ought to be able to talk to the other players and talk them through it and say right okay this has happened this is how we react to it you know we know in t- in 15 minutes time Conte is going to be taking us into the dressing room and he's going to be saying this we don't need to wait till then we can do that now and this is what we should be doing yeah. I think that's an excellent point I think I think that's an excellent point and, and, and to that point I think in the second half we did see that come uh, albeit as you say maybe because those seniors had to be reminded by Antonio Conte that they are as such and should lead in that way but we're again back to Rodrigo Bentancourt who increasingly seems to be taking on the mantle of the driver the motivator the man who's going to make it happen 
mean, he had a, a, an excellent second half, it has to be said. But we should also say that if you are going to make a chaos ball substitute, Brian Hill certainly seems a little more, uh, uh, you know, uh, of what he's required under that remit right now than, than anyone else we have on the bench. Would we not agree? He's the only option we've got on the bench. So he, he came on for Lucas midway through the second half. Uh, there really wasn't anyone else to, to pick from. You know, Bissouma coming on might have changed the, the the shape of the team, but it probably wasn't what we needed at, at that moment. Uh, I mean, I think Hill was suited because uh, Sporting again trying to flip this and look at it from from their perspective. I thought they unnecessarily sat back deeper and deeper and deeper as the second half went on. The the coach incited tiredness on on their part that forced them to do that. But I think if they'd played fifteen yards higher up the pitch, then they would have seen that game out. What the way the way things went. So by the time Hill went on, though, it, it meant that he was able to engage in the ball thirty yards from goal rather than. We 50 should yards not forget. Goal. We should not forget that as as deep as Sporting played, they did miss two. I mean, two of the biggest chances. I mean, my easiest chances you'll get, including one that was a um, is an open goal. I mean, the blokes. Yeah, I mean, again, that, that's slightly state of the game, isn't it? Because they were able to pick us off on the on the yeah. counter attacks. They knew that we yeah. were throwing players forward. I mean, bearing in mind that their manager spent most of the second half with his head in his hands, unable yeah. to watch the game. <laughs> he did. <It's>, he <laughs> did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But back to Hill, I thought he was excellent again. I think um, he's a he's really come on you know, leaps and bounds, and I think he really is pushing for a place, or you know, certainly kind of that first sub place maybe is is where he is. And you know, certainly when when Decky's back, if you're trying to manage Decky's minutes, then I'd much rather you know it was him coming on than the Mora and hopefully we're not too far away from that um I certainly think that he should he ought to be pushing for a starting place against Forest in the, oh, in yeah. the League Cup in a couple of weeks time or week and a half's time yeah I mean that that would be that would be worth the journey up there alone wouldn't it Steph oh it's going to be worth the journey I'm very excited yeah indeed indeed but uh look I mean uh, again given that we're not going to overanalyze this game I mean you know Rodrigo scores it's 1-1 I think at that point it's a pile on we all believe that we've got to that we're going to get the winner it's unfortunate that the best chances after that fall to Eric Dyer, um, uh, who did execute actually one brilliant turn and volley that was uh, lovely, supremely saved by the keeper. Beautiful techers there. Um, but he did miss, uh, you know, he missed the chance. It was nearly as bad as the chance that the sporting uh, Lisbon player missed with that glancing header at the end, which is easier to put in than, than, than miss. But again, you know, he's the, he's getting the chances. Uh, you'd, Love them to fall to Harry Kane. One did fall to Harry Kane via one of the uh, worst directed <laughs> headers back across goal you'll see from uh, <laughs> from Emerson, but uh, from Royale. But he did deflection. We think we've won. Var. I mean, look. Okay. <laughs> discussed it to death it's been discussed to death you know i've thrown 56 handbags all over the place and faffed like the faffer that i can be and we've all but i think what we agreed that was best to discuss here is how can we improve the var process in situations like this and uh first of all uh you know let, let let's go to the person who has more experience of dealing with with the rules in football than than either of us uh milo let's go to gareth first and why don't you expand on that from your perspective like you know what can we improve about a var process i mean, I mean firstly i was i was quite zen about it or even walking out the stadium but um what i think we just need to remind everyone is that these problems aren't 
because of VAR. What VAR does is it just exposes the minutiae and the pedantry of um, lots of the laws in there, which again, lots of people don't know exist or or, or don't really understand. Um, I, I mean, this is a it's a it's a pod in itself, isn't it? About what you do to to, to change VAR. Generally, I, I think I'm I'm happy that the people making the decisions it might take them longer than we'd like them to but they are making an objective decision and they are making it correctly most of the time um i again the only i'd also just remind people that as frustrated as we were on wednesday night going to talk to a manchester city fan walking out the etihad when the decision went in our favor in the quarter final in 2019 i know that well two they're not two wrongs because they were both two rights but the, the genie's well and truly at the bottle with VAR, isn't it? And if we're looking for something, and I say we collectively as, as, as football, if we're looking for perfection, then I'm afraid there are some, some sacrifices. I, I think it's, it's kind of all or it's, it's nothing. There's probably not too much in the, in the middle area for it. I think that we will, a VAR decision will go in our favour at some point, possibly not as in dramatic circumstances as, as, as we had against us last week, but. So be. ever the diplomat, you, you, you stated that the facts behind VAR, which is, which, which is, you know, it's, it's correct, even though I, I hate to admit it. Um, of course, being the, the great rule changers or not, oh, the great helpers, I should say that, that Milo and I, um, consider ourselves to be, uh, you know, let, let's, let's delve into what we can do to help these people, uh, with, with their process, especially with regards to the public fallout after a four minute, uh, VAR delay. And all the subsequent, you know, uh, kerfuffles that happened on the pitch. Milo, give us your uh, give us your perspective from that. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that probably the you know the offside rule isn't ready for Emerson Royale. That's the problem here. Is you know, kind of heading the ball backwards across someone else into a, into a player's path. You know, no one had actually kind of thought of that kind of combination yet. And you know, we talk about chaos ball, but I mean, that's that is his whole game. It's it's you know, <laughs> and maybe that's what they were looking at. Maybe they were looking to see if he was heading the ball way back across into the back of the box, and that maybe the deflection into Kane was thus. Maybe that's what they were looking. At. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe that was three and, minutes of the four, right there. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I was looking at the the rules of the kind of intentional kind of interception thing this week, and one of the things there does say that um, the, the ball's got to be going kind of going on the path you'd expect it to be, which would be <laughs> which disproves your point to Harry Kane. <laughs> And um, you know, any kind of Tottenham heading... Hotspur supporter would argue that that was not a clear case in this particular situation. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Gareth. I mean, I, I think you know it, it's a fine call. Harry Kane is offside. He's in front of the ball when it's when when uh, Emerson heads it. Um, the deflection, you know, Emerson heads the ball onto another player who is close enough that he couldn't react. He wasn't in control of the ball. Um, you know, and I think. This is where you get into that kind of folk understanding of a rule as opposed to what it says written down. And, you know, Steph, you and I were talking about this on, you know, when we had a kind of therapy session on Thursday night. Yeah, everyone and- should know that I actually, I, I, I dangled out a WhatsApp to to Milo saying, are you around for a, for a quick planning chat about this week's pod? Like, you know, no, and, and, and he knew, he knew the subtext was that I just <laughs> needed to talk this through. <laughs> It was a therapy session. So, so I heard it so you don't have to, listener. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was the result of our planning is that you don't have to listen to my hand-wringing uh, much. But, 
But you know, I think you, we'd all agree that if a if a defender's running back like that, then of course they're trying to get in the way of the ball. They're trying to you know they're trying to stop a goal. They're trying to defend. But in terms of the rule, it's about whether you're in control of that. And if a ball's hit straight at you from point blank range, then you're not in control of it. And that's um, and, you know that doesn't reset the um, the passage of play. So Kane's still offside from the previous passage. And um, but in terms of kind of what could be done to improve it, I shared with you guys. Uh, eclipsed in the rounds from from Australia from the A League, where they're piloting, uh, being able to hear the VAR officials and the ref and their conversation, and I think that would make a big difference because the people talking about it on TV most of the time don't know the rules, and actually being able to hear what you know, what the ref has seen and what he's asking the VAR officials and what the VAR officials are telling him would make a huge difference because we could actually understand what's happening. You might still disagree with the rule or disagree with the decision, but at least you could understand how it was made. Uh, this this is this is absolutely uh, the, the, the major point to come out of what happened on Wednesday night for me um, was, you know, forever in a day, depending on your perspective on technology and, and, and how much you want to trust frames per second or that, look, we can all go into, you know, whether you trust it or don't or, you know, definitives that's all going to things are going to be done to you know maybe make the rule better or rewrite the offside rules whatever whatever it is var needs to communicate much more clearly at the moment it also needs to communicate much more clearly after the moment it needs to have a statement ready within 45 minutes explaining exactly what happened we need to know more about who the var referees are let people know who is this person? Let's find out a little more about them. I'm not suggesting a tea and you know tea and Bicky social, but let's let's humanise these people a bit more. And I agree with you, Milo. If you were to add all that up with you know direct oral communication in the stadium, you can grumble about it, but ultimately you're getting the explanation as opposed to all this guessing. And I think the other big mistake that uh, UEFA made on on Wednesday was not releasing the AI image. Absolutely right. As I mean, I was kerfuffling about that. Yeah. So the position of Kane and the last defender was made on from the AI, and the AI images are really good, and they're very clear, and you can you can you know you can go right the way around it. You can see very clearly where everyone's positioned, and not releasing that, I think, was a mistake. And I think um, I think UEFA need to be a lot more consistent in how they're using that technology and what they're sharing, because again, I think. People are still query it, and particularly in the heat of the moment, and you know, last minute goals or the disallowed, everyone's going to grumble about it. But right. if you can actually see it, and and there's a bit more transparency about it, then I think it's a bit easier to take, and it will cut away from some of that. And I think to meld all that together, I still like the idea that perhaps the final decision does come back to the referee going to the monitor and looking. And it's interesting, Gareth, you brought up um, the the quarterfinal against Man City because the the major difference between that decision and this is that the referee was called to the monitor to make the final determination, if I remember correctly. I think, as a slight false memory, in that game, the oh. referee, who was Tunit Chakir, the Turkish yes. referee, he was yeah. called to the monitor to look at the Lorente third goal. Um, that is a false memory in, on my... in that game. Okay. Yeah. The, 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 the offside, he was, you, you, remember, okay. you remember he was standing on the D of the penalty area. Okay, so that's that's either going to hit the uh, hit the edit, or you're going to see how um, you know selective memory works. But uh, but you know, I, either way, I think we're all in agreement that you know the communication process from UEFA, uh, from football in general, whether it be the Premier League as well, and from VAR needs to be much clearer, much clearer. And as you said, Milo, you know, why not release that picture? And you know, why not prep 
the the officials to be ready to to have this information. They've got an army of people working. They can have people ready to disseminate this information within 45 minutes of the final whistle. I think one other thing to bring up as well, I know we've all had a little um, giggle about it maybe, but I do think it's worth mentioning. You know, the referee at the time, and I agree with you, Gareth, he's he's a top referee and, you know, it's indisputable that he is, you know, handling the biggest games. This was a big game. But I did feel that, you know, maybe a slightly better manner on the pitch in that four minutes as people are, you know, kind of going berserk, if you will, and so on, uh, would would have helped the situation and maybe a little bit more common sense when it came to our manager, who I, I think he's known as being a little over emotional, not giving him the excuse. Um, because as you said, Milo, and I'm going to leave you to say it, he, he also in the press conference then... Yeah, uh, started spouting conspiracy theories, which is, yeah, I thought that was really poor. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe the reason the ref had such a kind of big grin on his face is he couldn't believe that professional players thought that if the ball was passed backwards, it couldn't be offside. Maybe he was just laughing his head off and couldn't believe that. <laughs> I mean, it is possible. And actually, given that he responded to Eric Dyer at that moment, that's the moment we saw the grin. But nonetheless, I mean, you've got to contain that. You know, you have to as a professional. But I, I wonder if he was still giggling about the fact that uh, that Royale uh, didn't direct that. Or maybe he was laughing at that. It's a good job he wasn't <laughs> reffing the Bournemouth game, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Emerson. I hate. I hate it. I hate it. God love him. He does. You know, I, I, I love the man's effort. I really do. I refuse to bash him to to, to death. We're just. We're, would it, but it would have taken five minutes for the restart because he would have been rolling around on the floor laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless him. Anyway, look. I think that we have covered both that match and in particular the VAR situation uh, in a way that I, I, I don't think many other people are going to have taken the time to think about it this way. Um, it certainly challenged me to uh, consider how I react to VAR situations. Um, I, I'm pretty intransient when it comes to these sorts of things, but I think both of you have given me pause to consider, you know, truth versus my own beliefs versus, uh, you know, the, the middle ground here of of, of, of what, what needs to happen and ultimately it comes down to better communication so you know I, I think that's that's a very productive conversation we've had and I hope that you all out there listening agree and chaps I have to say uh, it's been a lot of fun I've really enjoyed this pod a lot I've enjoyed this one cheers Steph that was fun cheers Steph yeah excellent thanks and uh, you know doesn't get any lighter, does it? We've got a final against Marseille away on Tuesday in the Champions League. Um, just to uh, clarify, we will have European football next season regardless. This is uh, to decide whether it is going to be in the Europa League. This season. Sorry, this season. Yes. Did I After say next Christmas. season? Yeah, you, you meant next calendar year. Yeah. I'm thinking. Oh, no, no, I'm thinking of it in two. I am thinking this is two mini the, seasons. The so Cup thanks for the correction. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but um, yeah, we are going to have European football this season either way it's just a case of whether it is in the Europa League or the Champions League avoid defeat in Marseille we are in the Champions League we could still draw in Marseille and if results go our way in other games we could top the group it's going to be I think it's going to be a white knuckle ride isn't it really mm. <laughs> uh, and then of course it gets a you know a little easier I guess I guess with Liverpool at home <laughs> dearie me a, a Liverpool who are chastened right now, I might say, and, and smarting from their own bad run. So, you know, that's going to be a Titanic clash. And we will be talking about those next week. Um, if you like our pod, we'd be really grateful if you could share it on social media. It really helps us pick up new listeners and grow. Thanks very much again for the kind comments we have been receiving uh, up till now. And as always, thank you for joining us and we will see you next week. <laughs>